If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some good value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this in, in we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. We'll turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Go back to the teaching text that Jeff read for us. I want to invite the children, second grade and under, to line up here at the door in an orderly fashion. And <laughs> little Henry, he showed me that little airplane. Makes me think we our church. I grew up in this church, and we didn't have wings. It was just a small little sanctuary here. And I don't know what I was thinking, um, but I was. Uh, it was Wednesday night, and we're having our midweek Bible study. And the pastor would always come down here, and he had a little podium, and and everybody. It was few people, so we all kind of sit on one side, and and just in my boredom as a you know seven eight year old or whatever, I was. I made a little paper airplane out of the bulletin from Sunday. And I don't know what I was thinking because I was a pretty smart kid for the most part, but I don't know what I was, I was thinking. But I, for some reason, it just I wasn't thinking, you know, and I just I did like that. And I just let that airplane go. And I mean, my arm, I didn't even follow through good. And all of a sudden, I felt my dad jerk me up from out of that chair. And he took me right out there and he took his belt off and he commenced to he commenced to give me some discipleship, you know, and uh, right there on those steps and. Yeah, so anyway, maybe think about that when little Henry had that fly. Like, don't throw it, don't throw it. Run. <laughs> Mike ran up here, grab him. And, no, I'm just kidding. I deserved it. I deserved it. That was just a mental lapse on my part. I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, turn your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, glad you're here. Where else would you rather be on a Sunday morning than worshiping, singing truth, and now we're going to study truth. Um, looking forward to being together Wednesday night, our midweek Bible study. Encourage you to come if you're available, if you're free. We uh, really had a sweet time last Wednesday. Learned a lot, studied a lot, and just sweet to be together. And of course, next Sunday night, we're going to have a church wide get together. Looking forward to that as well. The Thorntons are um, hospitable folks, they're uh, willing to host us, and we're going to have a, have a good time. Looking forward to that. An actress known for her promiscuity, for her immoral lifestyle, can enter a theater and can play the part of Joan of Arc and move people to tears. How she lives doesn't affect her professional life. There was a, a practicing homosexual once did a monologue of the book of Mark, and it moved many. He even got an invite to the White House. But how he conducted himself off the stage didn't affect his role as a successful actor. You may have colleagues, co-workers, 
who live heinous lives. They're immoral, they're deceitful, maybe even at times criminal. Yet their professional life seems unaffected. This is true of many professions. But it's not true of teachers and preachers of the word of God, of pastors. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. He had gone on to Macedonia, left Timothy in Ephesus, giving him instructions on how to lead the church there. Last week we looked at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. There are false teachers there in Ephesus that came up from within the church, and their false teaching is causing some to fall away from the faith. And last week we saw that their false teaching was attributed to demons. In our passage today, we're going to see how a good leader responds to such heresy. Paul here is directing his attention to Timothy in the letter. So what does a good minister look like? What does a good pastor look like? Well, firstly, a good pastor, a good servant of the Lord points out error. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, who is the servant? It's the pastor. And the word is there translated servant, but it's diakonos. It's the same word we saw in chapter 3 dealing with deacons. Here it's referring to Timothy as a shepherd, as a pastor figure. Paul had told the Ephesian elders, remember in Acts chapter 20, we looked at that text several times. He instructed them, caring for them, said from within your church, there's going to be false teachers that are going to rise up. These things here in verse 6, I believe, is referring to verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4 as those false teaching, but probably because it's these things is mentioned in verse 6 and verse 11, verse 15, probably the letter as a whole too, but primarily dealing with these false teachings. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ. Sometimes as pastors we have to teach hard truths. We have to point out error. As a pastor, you, you teach truth, but you oftentimes have to say, no, brother, no, sister, that's, you're not thinking biblically. You're not thinking rightly. You're wrong. And that's hard to do. How many of you want to be told you're wrong? Anybody? But that's what a good pastor does. We have to give hard truths sometimes. And isn't that the way of the Bible? I mean, isn't that the way of the Bible? And we read the Bible and we learn a lot about God and who He is and what He's done and His character and a lot of cool stories. We are encouraged, we're empowered, we're emboldened. Motivated by the Word of God, but boy, oftentimes we read the Scriptures, it rubs us the wrong way. You 
It hurts. It's abrasive. It's uncomfortable. Sometimes a good pastor has to tell someone in their church that they're wrong. Some of you here, you've you're been seeking the Lord. You've been visiting our church, trying to figure out where you need to be. You know you need to put down some roots. You know you need to have a church home, and you're trying to determine if this is a good place for you. So you say, is this a good church for me to call home? And there's probably a lot of answers to that question, but one should be, you know a church is healthy, church I need to be at if the teaching of the word results in conviction of sin. A good pastor points out error. And look at the, the next part of this text. How is Timothy supposed to be able to point out doctrinal error? He says that he's being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Being trained in the NASV, it, it's Translated, constantly nourished on the word. This is, this is how one is prevented from being tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, as Ephesians 4.14 tells us. Timothy is, is able to point out error because he himself is being nourished and fed the word over and over and over, daily. All the best teachers have themselves remained students. I mean, think about it. If you're a teacher, Jerry Johnson's a teacher. He teaches a myriad of subjects. He's an ag teacher. And he's learning all the time. He's learning all the time. And that's true as a pastor. You're constantly being nourished and fed the Word. A good pastor can teach well because he learns well. A pastor overcomes error, demonic error, by being strong in the Word. It's hard to point out false doctrine if you aren't maintaining a steady diet of truth yourself. So a good pastor has to feed himself. He has to eat regularly at the trough of truth. Thinking about this, I grew up, one of my favorite things in all the world to do is, is rabbit hunt. And now we hunt, we deer hunt, and we squirrel hunt, and we coon hunt, and we do all these things, turkey hunt. But I, I really love to rabbit hunt, and we grew up, we had a lot of beagles, and um, we hunted dogs and trained dogs. But beagles, they're bred to run a track, and they're not bred to run a rabbit track. They're just bred to run a track. And so if you're training them, you don't take them to a place and all their, there's just deer everywhere. There's no rabbits, but there's deer. They're not going to learn how to run a rabbit track if you carry them to a place that has no rabbits. You take them to a place that has plenty of rabbits, and after running enough rabbits and with a little bit of negative reinforcement, they'll know what they're supposed to do. Similarly, we to know what truth is, to know what error is, we have to study a lot of truth. It's kind of like the counterfeiters, those who are experts in determining which, which bill is counterfeit. They don't study a lot of 
counterfeit bills. No, they study the true bills so they'll know which ones are counterfeit. Kind of the same idea. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, John the Apostle, he's writing to, he says, I've written to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. You're strong. Why? Because the word of God abides in you. So as a, a good pastor, Paul writing to Timothy, to be a good pastor, the word of God has to abide in you. And about once a week, I try to get up early and I go, I get up early every morning, but um, usually once a week I try to go to um, one of the little gas stations near my home. And there's always a congregate of uh, older men. And um, I like to just get a cup of coffee, get a biscuit, and sit down and just chew the fat. And I try to do that once a week. And um, we were talking about our, our garden here at the church, and we planted uh, a lot of greens after we got the corn and the peas and all that up. But it didn't rain for like two or three weeks, and so we're just kind of waiting on the rain. And it finally rained, and so they're asking me, hey, did your greens come up? And I said, yeah. And we were talking about that, and one of the older men, he was teasing uh, about eating greens, and he told the old joke. You've heard this probably already, but he ate so many greens as a child, his mom had to put a coal oil rag around his ankles to keep the cutworms off of him. He just, I just... I just ate so many greens, I almost became a green. And that's kind of the way it is when we, we're cut. As a, a good pastor, we should bleed Bible. We should bleed Bible. Pastors, we need to feed on the Word. And, and this, you think about small group leaders, too. Here, we have small group leaders, people who are under shepherds, and they're shepherding their, their small group. We need to feed on the Word, and then we need to feed our congregation or our small group, those in our sphere of influence. We have to, the words of faith and good doctrine, right? Teach them truth. And, and Timothy was to lay this out for him. Put these things before the brothers. Point these things out. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17. God speaks to the prophet and Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And it's kind of prof prophetic. We, have, we do the same, right? We hear someone say something that's not biblical, that's not true. We point that out. Well, a good pastor, a good shepherd, a good servant points out error. Secondly, a good servant of the Lord is discipline. Look at verse 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now think about that. We've already seen this in chapter 1, verse 4. The false teachers were misusing the law. They wanted to be law teachers, but they didn't understand the law. They didn't understand how it was used, so they're misusing it. There were endless genealogies that they were promoting. These are, he's, I think he's lumping all these things together. It's just like old wives' tales. Now, if you're an older wife, put on some thick skin. Don't get your feelings hurt. But I've heard a few old wives' tales in my day. A couple of them I want to share with you. And you might have a couple that you like to share as well. I've heard this one a thousand times. It didn't come from an old wife. I'm not going to say who it came from. Don't go to bed with your hair wet. If you do, you'll wake up with a sore throat. I've heard that a thousand times. I'm not saying who I heard it from. 
It's not an old wife. But that's not true. Because you know what I did when I went to college? I'd get a shower, I'd go to, go to, go to bed with my hair wet, and I never had a sore throat when I woke up. That's not true, right? Two, I was a biology major, and I learned really quickly. That's not scientifically proven. In fact, it's wrong. Oh, wives' tale. It's not true. Eating carrots will help you see better. If that was the case, I wear reading glasses. In fact, what I do when I get up in the morning, I have a, 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 my little um, end table there. I put, I put my nightstand, I put my glasses on my head just like this. And they're there until I go to bed and I put them here because I can't read things. I have bifocals. And um, I eat carrots all the time. We always have carrots at our house. And there's a sack. And Jenny, she just went to the, the Asian grocery store. If you're visiting with us, we lived overseas. We ate a lot of Chinese food, and we love it. We eat it in our house a couple times a week. But there's a bag, and it's like this big around of carrots. You know, It's a big hoss bag of carrots. It's not true. That is not scientifically proven. It's an old wives' tale. You have one? You got one you want to share? What about uh, pulling out uh, a gray hair? Don't pull out a gray hair. Don't pluck a gray hair. Why? Yeah, two will grow back in his place. Hey, 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 look. That's not true. Look. Yeah, I see you, Dan. That's right. That's, Dan is proof. Look at Dan. That is proof. That is not true. It's an old wives' tale, right? And if it was true, I'd be pulling a few out. What about this one? Lily, don't swallow gum. Because it takes seven years for your body to digest it. That's not true. That's not true. Now all you kids are going, my mom and dad is a liar. They've been telling me this stuff. No, it's just things we believe that aren't true. They're old wives' tales, right? <laughs> yeah, and false teachers, were, they're misusing the law, and they've got these genealogies, and they're, 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 they're promoting all these silly myths, and it just, they're all just like old wives' tales. It's nonsense. And what they're doing there, they're promoting a, a false gospel, right? They're misusing the law. Don't, you, you shouldn't get married. You shouldn't eat certain foods. Legalistic. Merit salvation. You earn salvation. That's what they're telling. It's a false gospel. Or they're, they're promoting all these other things. They're manufacture stories to promote, defend an immoral lifestyle. Either way, it's wrong, right? In contrast, to listen to the false teachers, the old wives' tales that mean nothing. Timothy is, is said, is told to train, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And that word translated discipline yourself, train yourself, is from the same word we get at word gymna gymnasium from, gymnastics. All right? Paul is telling Timothy that he needs some practical piety. Training involves doing. If you want to get physically stronger, physically faster, you want to get smarter, you have to work at it. Some of you are going to be taking your ACT. Get that 15 up. You got to work at it a little bit. It ain't just going to, it's not just going to happen, is it, Jerry? You got to put in a little time, a little effort. Yeah. Spiritually, if we want to grow, get stronger, 
We have to work at it. How many, how many of you are lazy besides me? Anybody lazy here? Lazy people? Yeah? Very. Yeah, if you're not lazy, the rest of you, if you're not lazy, you're a liar, right? Yeah, we're all lazy. This is what I mean by this. Now, there's some people who are, I, I, don't, I don't sit around and do nothing very much. My wife, in fact, says, hey, why don't you just, like, sit down and do nothing? I'm like, baby, we've been doing nothing all morning. I'm wiping down the, the, the glass doors, you know, and she said, why, why are you doing that? I said, well, it needs to be done. Why would I not do it? Makes perfectly sense. It's dirty. I should clean it. No, I want you to sit down and relax. Some of you are like that. You like to be doing something. You like to be busy. You have a day off. You don't sit around on the couch watching TV. You typically are doing something. I can call Chris Wilkes. He's going to be doing something, either at his house, getting a honeydew list done, or he's at his parents, or he's somewhere doing something. Jerry Johnson is going to be doing something all the time. He's not going to just sit around and do nothing. But some of us are very diligent. We're hardworking people. Hardworking. Brent is very hardworking. He's always going to be doing something. Never going to be idle. But, but for us who are like to be busy, let me ask you a, a question. Are you as diligent at Diligent in growing in godliness as you are in getting that 57 Chevy running? Are you as diligent in growing in godliness as you are in getting your yard and your, your grass in shape? Are you as diligent in growing in godliness as you are at getting your business going? Are you as diligent in growing in godliness as you are killing the, the, the big tom turkey or the, the big buck or catching a bunch of fish. We can be busy and, 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 and active and hardworking, but not be hardworking at the right stuff. I, I, you can say a lot of things about me that would be a lot of critical things. You can be critical of me, and a lot of those things would be true, I'm sure. But one thing you probably won't be able to say is that I'm lazy, physically lazy. Typically not going to be true, but guess what? I'm lazy. Spiritually speaking, I am lazy oftentimes. This word, train yourself. Train is a, um, a verb. It's a present imperative tense. It means it's a process. It means you never can say, I've arrived. It's like physically... You may be on an exercise program. You may go to the gym. Um, if, you, if you do, go to the Toka Fitness Center, right, Mickey? Um, you exercise. You've been on this program for five years, and you are in the best shape of your life. But what happens if you stop today and you don't go back? You start to soften, right? All that toned muscle begins to soften and weaken. So it's a process. You have to continually exercise, continually work at it, right? Same is, same is true spiritually. We never arrive. We never graduate. Training yourself for godliness means you have to go against your feelings. When you think about it physically when you're getting in shape, you're just like, I'm tired. I just want to quit. I just want to stop. That's the way it is spiritually, right? 
yeah, we can't quit. We, we want to sleep the extra 30 minutes instead of getting up and studying and reading and, and, and putting on the armor and having quiet time with the Lord. No, we have to get up and do it because if not, we become spiritually weak. It takes work. Look at verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, and that's true. Now, don't, don't, don't misquote your pastor. Say, hey, the pastor said we didn't need to work out. No, that's not a waste of time. Paul says it's, it's, it's helpful. It's of value. It's just not of, of great value, right? Physically, you can get in shape, but one day you're going to die. No matter how hard you work out, no matter how good you eat, you're going to die. We're not going to live forever. But spiritually, training yourself spiritually is of greater importance, greater benefit. Because it's profitable not just for the here and now, but also for the life to come. And Paul desires Timothy that he exercise in godliness because it has eternal value. There's a biography I'm reading. Jenny got me a two-volume biography, George Whitfield, and he was once told of seeing some criminals riding in a cart on their way to the gallows. So they're in this in this wagon, bars all around it, and they're on the way to be hung. And they're arguing like a bunch of kids going on a trip about who should sit on the right side of the cart because on the right side you can actually see a little bit better. Here were men, they're condemned to die and they're going to lose our life in a few hours, but they're focused on who got the best seat on the, in the wagon. How are we often like that? Everyone who's living for this life is like the convict who's fussing about having the best seat on, in the wagon as he's headed for his demise. We live for this life, oftentimes instead of living for eternity. What does it mean to train and discipline ourselves for godliness? And commentators and pastors mention things like practicing what you preach, and that's true. Others say spending more time on the spiritual things than on the physical things. Well, whatever that means specifically about disciplining yourself for godliness, I think it has to entail the word. Reading, studying, and meditating, and memorizing, and applying the Word of God to our lives. William Tyndale, he's the man who's responsible for getting the New Testament translated into the English language, one of our heroes of the faith. In 1525, he's in prison facing martyrdom. He would lose his life for translating the Bible into English, making it available for us, and it was, his translation was used. And anyway, we have uh, much to thank him for. He wrote a letter to 
the governor-in-chief, asking that these possessions be sent to him. A warm cap, a warmer cap, a warmer coat, a piece of cloth to patch his leggings so it's wintertime and he's cold. It's damp and it's cold. So he's asked for those things. But then he writes, But most of all, I beg and beseech and entreat your clemency to be urgent with the, with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. I need all these things. I would love to have some of these things, but most importantly, if I could have this, that would be really good. His Hebrew Bible, his lexicon, so he could study. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to say that what we desired most is what helps us understand his word the best? That was Tyndale's desire, and that's Paul's as well. He had the same request. A good servant of the Lord, a good pastor, points out error. A good servant of the Lord is disciplined and trains himself for godliness. And lastly, a good servant always remembers the purpose in what he does, verse 9 and 10. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This saying Those in the church there in Ephesus, they, they, they heard the Old Testament read often. And they even probably had copies of, of some of those scriptures. But they heard the Old Testament, very familiar with the Old Testament. The New Testament, of course, at this particular time had not been put together, not been canonized, because this, this letter is part of the canon. But what they did have is they had hymns that they had memorized and they sang together, had been written and, and sang together. But they also had these sayings that were circulated and repeated, and they so much so that they knew them, and this is one of them. And we've mentioned two of those already in the, in the book, in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the, the foremost. So that's one of the, the sayings. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So I think the, the saying is the first part. The last part is Paul threw that in there. It's like, I'm the worst of sinners, actually. So that's the first saying. Just a saying that was passed around, they said often, uh, in the church. The second, chapter 3, verse 1, this saying is trustworthy. Here's the second one is, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing for people that want to be pastors. That's a good thing. So that's the second one. And here is the third uh, this trustworthy statement. For to this end we toil and strive. And that word toil means, I don't know, a lot of us have desk jobs. And mine is a lot of times too. I, I sit at the desk and do work and meet with people and I do a lot of teaching, counseling, teaching. But for some of you, you have it's very laborious. And, and sometimes for me it's like this, but not always, but some of you, you work a very strenuous job. And you come home and you eat and you take a shower, clean up a little bit, and you go to bed because you're wore out. That's kind of the, the idea here. For this end, we toil and strive. It's when you work to where you're like, you're, you're tuckered out. And, and some, some of us have jobs like that. Some of us don't. Some of us mentally, right? Mentally, you have a job there's a lot of pressure and a lot of 
So you go home and you're, you just, you're out because the, you're drained mentally. And that's part of it as well. But here is that idea that we're, we're working. Why do, we, why do we toil? Why do we strive? It's because we, we're wore out. We're tuckered out. Paul is, why does he go through this toil and agony and striving? It's because he had hope. He was motivated to do so. And what's his motivation? Look, look what it says. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. What's the motivation for Paul to get after it spiritually? What's the motivation behind that? He's ho- he has hope. His hope is the living God. We've seen this living God already. We should be saying, because he lives. Yeah, we, we serve a living God. He's not dead in the grave. He's, he's alive. He defeated sin and death, and he's living. He's eternal. And we worship him, and we honor him, and we live for him, and we pursue him because he's living and he's working and active. Sustaining the universe, involved in our lives. That's the motivation. We have hope. For me as a pastor, what motivates me to get after it and pursue the Lord is my hope that I get God. In the end, I get Him. We, we look forward to a crown. We look forward to a reward. We look forward to, to Him for all eternity. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. It's about getting away and sinning and being in the flesh. And he's beating his body. He's disciplining himself. He's training himself. Why? Because he had hope. It's not about this world only. It's about what's coming for us down the road. And isn't it interesting? We, Paul wants Timothy to labor and strive because of the hope they had and we do the same because of the hope we have who came to seek and to save lost people. And isn't it awesome that God is seeking and saving lost people, but he's using the church, he's using us to, to spread his message and pursue those people. That's kind of cool. We get to be involved in the process. And notice what it says here. Our motivation is the hope that's set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, this is interesting. What does it mean that God is a savior of all people? What does it mean that everybody's going to be saved in the end? Ultimately, it doesn't matter how we live because in the end, everybody's going to be saved. God's like the big Santa Claus in the sky. Everybody gets a present on Christmas. In the end, it's all going to work out. We're all going to heaven. Whatever that is, it's all kind of... I don't think that's what this is teaching us because it contradicts other scriptures, right? Right? 
You know, it's not saying everybody's going to be saved. It's not this universalism that everybody's going to be saved. It can't mean that. So what are the possible meanings? Well, one possible meaning is that, that God is a Savior of all, being all types of people. I mean, think about it. you got Jew and you got Gentile in the New Testament. That's pretty, there's a pretty apparent conflict there. Jews who were the people of God and the Gentiles who were pagan and they didn't know the Old Testament, but yet God sent Jesus to die for sinners. And some were Jews and some were Gentiles, right? So is, could it be that he's the Savior of the Jews, but he's also the Savior of the Gentiles? And God is the Savior of those who believe, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Possibly. In fact, Paul gives us another verse that is similar to this verse, 1 Timothy 2, 6, when he said Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, we know that not all will be ransomed. That's not true, right? Just like universalism isn't true. Not everybody's going to be ransomed. What does it mean that he's ransomed for all? I think it's similarly, it's possible, it's a similar connection there. Christ is, is, his death is therefore unlimited in its sufficiency, but limited in its application. Meaning that all could be saved if they just re repent and believe in Christ. And that, that is possible. That may be problematic depending on how you understand the atonement. So that's a possible explanation. That Christ is the Savior of all, all types of people. But only those who actually place their faith in Christ will actually receive eternal salvation. Another understanding of this difficult verse is that Savior is used in a general sense and that God, is, God gives grace to all people, like common grace. Jesus is the Savior of all people. God's the Savior of all people, meaning he is a preserver, right, of people. It gives them not saving grace, but just common grace. For instance, there's some verses here to, that we, we see that maybe make a connection. Psalm 36, 6. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. They're saved, meaning preserve, not save in an eternal salvific sense, but you preserve. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Common grace, right? Is God good to all people? Yeah. Gives them life and breath. And yeah, sure. Acts 17, 28. Paul, he's in Athens, the Areopagus, and they have all these idols and to different gods, and there's one that's to the unknown God. Just kind of a plaque there. And Paul is trying to make an argument. The, the God you don't know is the God who created all things, and he's the one we should be worshiping. And he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said. And he goes on and quotes one of the prophets. We live and we move and we have our being. And he's talking about there, this is true for all people. It's common grace. So could it be that this is referring to common grace and God's a savior of all people. I mean, he preserves everybody. I mean, he gives common grace to everybody, right? But he gives salvific grace to those who repent and believe. All experience grace by God, but salvation is given to those who believe.
So that's a difficult text, but there's some of the thoughts about that verse. So they give you something to chew on this week. If you have questions, send me questions. I'd love to correspond with you. But the, that's a difficult text. But the main point here is, is what? That to be a good servant, a good pastor, you've got to do three things. One is point out error. That's hard to do sometimes. Tina, you're wrong. Morgan, you're wrong. Jane, you're not thinking rightly. Mary Jane, what you just said is not true. In fact, you should never say that again because it's not helpful. That's hard. But that's what a good shepherd does, a good servant. A good shepherd, a good servant is, is diligent to study and train grow spiritually and we all fail in that regard don't we we're lazy we don't want to meditate on scripture we don't want to memorize scripture because I'm lazy and I'm rather not it takes effort to do that yeah we need to grow in that but to be a good shepherd Paul's wanting Timothy to be a good shepherd you got to train yourself for godliness be diligent in everything especially Spiritual growth. And I fail in that regard. And thirdly, we have to remember our purpose. What's this all about? Why are we doing this? What, are, what is our motivation? Our motivation is Him. The great Him, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. The saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. Right? Yeah, I'm blind, but now I see. And that's the beauty of it. What's this all about? What's the motivation? He's the motivation. I get him. I want him. I want the intimacy with him. I want to know him. I want to please him. I want to glorify him. He's my savior. He's my king. More than my wife. More than my kids. More than my family. More than my friends. More than whatever. He's what life's about. And I get him. That's my motivation. So we struggle and we labor because Jesus lived and he died for our sin and he rose to give us life. Why are you here today? You're not here because Shane's going to, might call and find out why I didn't come. So I'll get up and go. By the way, never to your pastor, never say, man, I just couldn't get up. Who sleeps to 10.30 in the morning? Which grown person sleeps to 10.30? Why are you here? Because Chris McWilliams studied six hours for, to teach the small group, and I hate for him to study all that time and me not even show up to listen to what he has to say. No, that's not your motivation. What's your motivation? Your hope is set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. I beat my body and make it my slave. I get after it. Why? Because my hope is set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially for me who believes on Him. Yeah. 
What do we do with this text just by way of application? I think firstly, some of it is plain, right? I mean, just as sound doctrine transforms us, unsound doctrine, error deforms us. So what do we do as pastors, as your pastor and small group leaders, if you're in leadership, what do we do? We, we point out false teaching. Even in your small group class, right? Children's church back here. Kids bring up things and they say things that aren't true. You just correct that. No, that's not true because the Bible says here. Da, da, da. Yeah, we point out error that needs to be pointed out. When we're wrong, we need to point that thing out. And we do that in the right way, in a way that's palatable, right, for the person. So that's application number one. The second thing, I think, just by way of application, I think we just need to repent of being lazy. Don't raise your hand. This is a rhetorical question. Rhetorical. But how many of you are lazy? Yeah, I think spiritually we're all lazy. How many of you have meditated on Scripture this week? How many of you memorized a verse of Scripture this week? How many of you spent more time reading the Bible, serving the Lord, than watching TV this week? You know, there's all kind of questions we could ask. We're all lazy. The point I'm trying to get at, Charles, we're all lazy. You are, I am, we're all lazy, spiritually lazy. We'd rather be doing a lot of things than growing spiritually, getting after it. So let's repent of that this morning and say, you know what, Pastor, you're right. I'm lazy. Why is it that we have the Word of God? William Tyndale died that I could have an English Bible. He, would, he died so that I could have an English Bible, and I, but I don't read it. How pitiful is that? We got people died for this. Let's read, let's study, let's meditate, let's do all the things drawn near the Lord that we need to do in order to grow spiritually. That's a given. Let's just repent of our laziness. Thirdly, I think. What have you fixed your hope on? Paul says, I can, I can get after it and grow spiritually. Why? Because of what Christ done for me. He's, that's my hope. The living God is my hope, who's the Savior of all people, especially for me. But maybe you're not getting after it spiritually because you have no hope. And that's a good question to ask, I think, today. Like, do I really, am I really pursuing God? Am I really diligently working out spiritually so I can grow? And it has to, it has to center around the Word. It has to. And some of that is application, right? Am I doing things? Am I serving my neighbor? Am I serving the church? Am I using my gifts? But it's all centered around the Word. But for some of us, I think a good question to ask is, am I not pursuing him? Am I not getting after it, training myself for godliness because I have no hope? And my point being is it could be you're not doing this because you're lost and you don't have a Savior. Students, it could be that you're lost. I don't care. I don't give a rip about that. I'm not getting after it spiritually. I'm not trying to grow in godliness at all. 
In fact, I don't want to do those things. It could be that you're lost and you have no hope. That means you're going to hell. You're separated from God. You don't know God. You can't communicate with God. You're at enmity with God. Maybe that you need to repent. Maybe an adult. Maybe you don't have any, you know, get up and go about you, spiritually speaking. You don't want to grow in godliness because you're a lost person and you're separated from the Lord. What is your hope? Is your hope in the living God? I don't have any hope. Well, then what do I do? Well, repent. Repent of your laziness and lack of love for God and all things God-like. Repent and trust Christ who did live and who did die so that you could be reconciled to God. Jesus lived a perfect life. He wants to give you his perfect record, his righteousness, the Bible calls it. He wants to give you his righteousness. Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. God poured out his, the Father poured out his wrath upon the Son. Punishment that we all deserve. He was, he was killed on the cross. He was put in a tomb. And on the third day he rose, the Bible says, for our justification so we could be made right with the Father. And how you're made right with the Father is by you repent, turn from living for yourself, and you embrace, trust the Son and the work He did for you on the cross. He lived, He died, He was resurrected so that you could be reconciled to God. And you say something like this. This is an application point for lost people. You, might, you would say something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I've been in rebellion against you my entire life. I have no hope because I, I, I'm living for myself. But today, I want to turn from that. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't want to rebel against you anymore. I don't want to be your enemy anymore. Today, I want to live for you. I want to give you my life. I'm trusting the work that Christ did on the cross. He died for me. He rose for me. He lived for me. I want his righteousness. I want to know you, Father. And I'm trusting that Jesus did all those things for me. And I'm asking you to save me. Wash me. Receive me into your family. I want to know you and be your child. Amen. Maybe just by way of application, you need to tell the Lord something like that today. Whatever it is you need to do, you just do business with the Lord. And when we all leave here, I'm going to be the last one here. It's 11.55. Man, we're getting out early. Preachers preaching fast these days. <laughs> When, when I leave here, it's going to be 12.30, 1 o'clock, who knows. But when I leave, I'll be the last one here. I'd love to talk to you about any of those things. But we all need to repent. Lily, we need to repent today. Either you repent of your laziness, you repent for the first time and say, I need to trust Christ. Let's stand and let's pray, okay? God's a good God. He's been giving us um, a lot of grace. He's the Savior of all people. However, however you handle that text, I'd love to talk to you about that because that's a fun text to talk about. And I've been well studied, and I can argue five points if you want to about that. I'd love to talk to you about it, but it's a good text, text we wrestle with. We land softly on because it's not real, real clear. But the main point of the text is very clear, right? Paul wants Timothy to be a, a good shepherd, and I want to be a good shepherd.
So you pray for me that I'll be a good shepherd and all the things I need to do, that I wouldn't be spiritually lazy, that I would get after it, memorize scripture and draw near the Lord and all those things I need to do. But we all need to repent of something today, whether our spiritual laziness or maybe you need to repent for the first time. So let's just pray and set before the Lord and, and you just take care of business with the Lord today. He has been, God has been so good to us. He is the Savior of all men. Think about the good gifts you've been given. You, you're, you're given life and breath, and some of you are very wealthy. We're all wealthy in the big scheme of things compared to people in the world. We're wealthy. We have so much. We have good jobs, many of us. We get to go to school. We have something to eat. Um, we should all have something to eat today, and we are blessed. But we have uh, been in rebellion against the Lord. We've lived our lives for ourselves, and God calls us to repentance. If you could summarize Jesus' teachings in three words, it would be repent and believe. And so I want to encourage you, if you're lost, if you don't have hope, if you don't know what will happen when you die, if you don't have uh, assurance that Jesus has paid your sin debt and you have a relationship with the Father through Christ. I'll encourage you to repent today. Pray something like I, I modeled for you a little bit earlier. Won't you just tell the Lord that? Just block out everything else I'm saying. You just do business with the Lord right now. If you're lost, you should repent. God loves you. He wants to bring into his family. And we'd love to know about that if you're doing business with the Lord. Maybe us as a church, we need to be praying firstly for these lost people that God would draw them to himself and that they right now would be doing business with God and that God would grant them faith and repentance. But those of us that are believers, that we have repented and trusted Christ, we need to repent of our laziness. We've been lazy this week. We haven't been diligent. We haven't studied enough and meditated and memorized. We haven't, those of us who have been diligent studying, we probably haven't applied it to our lives as we should. Let's just pray and ask the Lord for grace. Repent and thank Him for His forgiveness in Christ and commit to being faithful. Today, it's Sunday, it's Everest. We don't take a day off from loving Jesus. Ask the Lord to give us grace today to be diligent, to be faithful, and that this week we would pursue Him, train ourselves for godliness. Father, we are thankful for Your mercies. We're thankful that we serve a living God who not only rose from the dead 2,000 years ago but who is sustaining life all life who's sovereign over all creation and Father you providentially brought people here today to, to sing truth and to study truth 
pray for the lost, that they would be saved, that they would repent and believe, and that the, the church, those who are a part of your family, would be faithful, that we would grow spiritually, that students tomorrow morning would get up early and, and study and read and put on the armor that you want them to put on, and adults would get up earlier or on the way to work even just turning off the radio and 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 draw near to you in prayer and listening to the word on audio and just help us be faithful help us memorize the word help me to be diligent in memorizing scripture father help us to be faithful this week so we can give you glory so that our those in our sphere of influence would see our lives and would ask and we'd be able to tell them the hope that we have in Christ. Father, we ask for uh, mercies for those that are sick. We have a lot of folks who are ill with, with different things going on. We just ask for help for them. And Father, for our small groups that are going to meet tonight, may you bless their efforts and may their fellowship be real sweet. For our time Wednesday, I just pray that you would just bless us, that our time would be just as sweet as it was last Wednesday night. What a sweet time we had. Just bless our efforts. and. And keep us. Help us be faithful to you. We need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.